The news continues, so let's hand it over to Wolf Blitzer and CNN Tonight. Wolf. John, thank you very, very much. And we want to welcome our viewers here in the United States and around the world. I'm Wolf Blitzer, and this is CNN Tonight. Brand new satellite images this evening show Russia moving additional troops closer and closer to Ukraine's border in recent days, along with the construction of a new field hospital. Dozens of tents and vehicles have appeared recently, according to images taken over an airfield in Belarus, less than 25 miles from the Ukrainian border. The area was apparently completely vacant just a few weeks ago, and this is only heightening concerns about Vladimir Putin's intentions. The world is now watching and waiting for his next move after the West slapped Russia with a coordinated series of very significant consequences today. Consequences for what President Biden now refers to as the start of an invasion of Ukraine. This is the beginning of a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Who in the Lord's name does Putin think gives him the right to declare new so-called countries on territory that belong to his neighbors? This is a flagrant violation of international law and demands a firm response from the international community. And that firm response came in the form of numerous economic sanctions for Putin's move of Russian troops into two breakaway areas of eastern Ukraine in a very aggressive attempt to redraw the map of the region. They include sanctions from the U.S. on two big Russian financial institutions with close ties to the Kremlin, cutting off Russia from Western financing and inflicting economic pain on the country's elites and their families. President Biden calls it the first tranche, warning of more to come the further Russia goes. And on top of that, the UK is sanctioning multiple Russian banks and oligarchs, and Germany halted certification of a key natural gas pipeline. Nord Stream 2 would have increased European reliance on energy from Russia dramatically, something the US and other allies warned about, but is no longer in play, at least for now. NATO Secretary General calls this moment the most dangerous for European security in a generation. Tensions are only building with a large amount of Russian military vehicles seen drawing closer to Ukraine's border earlier. Meanwhile, President Biden is going straight after Putin with his words, calling him out for his, quote, twisted rewrite of history to try to justify taking more territory by force, a rant full of grievances to try to lay the groundwork to annex annex former Soviet territories, but the president is still signaling hope there's a way to get Putin to pull back. We still believe that Russia is poised to go much further in launching a massive military attack against Ukraine. Hope I'm wrong about that. There is still time to avert the worst case scenario that will bring untold suffering to millions of people if they move as suggested. I'm hoping diplomacy is still available. So is there still time to avert that, quote, worst case scenario? Let's go live to the capital of Ukraine, seeing as Matthew Chance is on the scene for us. Matthew, how is Russia, first of all, responding to the wave of new sanctions, both from the U.S. and the Western European nations? Uh, Hey, Wolf. Well, I think in the first instance, the Russians are essentially brushing off those sanctions. They're they're not paying any attention to them. And and I think what what Russian officials are saying, uh, essentially, is that, you know, look, the the idea that there is going to be sanctions because of our actions was already factored in to the decision-making process. Uh, One very revealing comment came from the Kremlin earlier today when the spokesperson for Vladimir Putin was asked, you know, what 
Vladimir Putin's reaction was to President Biden's uh, recent remarks this evening. He said, I'm sorry, he didn't even watch them. He was busy in a working meeting. And so they're sort of not, you know, not even sort of giving, giving that, at least publicly admitting that they, they're giving those announcements in Washington uh, the time of day. Um, it, there's also been uh, sort of comments come from uh, the former president of, of Russia, former prime minister, a close Putin ally, Dmitry Medvedev, in response to the German sanctions, which I think have been particularly uh, stinging, the suspension of that Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline uh, from uh, Russia to Germany that would have dramatically increased the amount of natural gas that Russia exports to the European Union. It, that has now been suspended, the approval on that by the German government, a pretty, a pretty tough measure implemented by them. You know, Dmitry Medvedev, Medvedev that, that close Putin ally, tweeting out, welcome to a brave new world where Europeans, and I'm paraphrasing it here, where Europeans will be paying essentially thousands of dollars uh, for their gas. There's already a gas shortage in the European Union that's led to a massive spike in, in prices. And this is just a, you know, a, a reminder uh, from that powerful Russian official that sanctions, when it comes to Russia, can cut both ways. And so, you know, look, as I say, the, the Russians have had sanctions upon sanctions imposed upon them in the past, you know, over the past 10 years for various Russian misdeeds, uh, whether it comes to the annexation of Crimea, uh, meddling in the uh, presidential election in 2016 in the United States, or attacks against opposition figures and opponents and dissidents. But none of those sanctions have had uh, a discernible impact on Russian policy, and it looks like this current tranche of sanctions is not going to have much impact at the moment either, Wolf. Well, we shall, we shall see about that. Uh, what more can you tell us, Matthew, about Russian troop movements on the ground? Well, I mean, the troops are, as, as you mentioned at the start of the show, uh, moving closer all the time and, um, and, and growing in number close to Ukraine's uh, borders. Uh, we've seen that uh, those more satellite images uh, coming out over the past couple of hours, uh, showing that there are medical facilities, uh, other infrastructure, military infrastructure, uh, you know, things uh, being being put into place. All indicating that more preparations are being made uh, for an eventual, you know, potential invasion into into uh, into into Ukraine. Now the Russians say they've got no intention of invading. Uh, in that in that full scale way, but there is there are these growing concerns tonight, Wolf, that with the recognition of those rebel republics in the east of the country by Russia, um, the problem is is that those those rebel republics only control a tiny amount of the area that they claim as their territory. Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, has recognised their claim to the entirety of those territories. And so the big concern now is that those rebels, emboldened with recognition from Moscow, will use this as an opportunity, perhaps backed by Russian tanks that have gathered near the border, to push outwards, to restart that war in the east of Ukraine and grab more land. It's why the recognition of these republics could be the start of a, a, a broader invasion by Russia and its proxies into Ukrainian territory. Matthew Chance in Ukraine. Uh, stay safe over there. Be careful. Excellent, excellent 
reporting. Uh, I want to turn right now to a Democratic senator who sits on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He also took part in last week's Munich Security Conference, widely considered to be the world's leading forum for international security policy. Senator Chris Van Hollen of Maryland is joining us right now. Senator, thanks so much for joining us. As you know, President Biden is warning uh, that, uh, and I'm quoting him now, Russia is poised to go much further in launching a massive military attack against Ukraine. And tonight, the latest satellite images showing Russian troops moving closer and closer to the Ukrainian border. It seems to back that up. What are you bracing for, Senator, in the coming hours and days? Well, Wolf, it's uh, good to be with you. And, and it may be a fact that uh, Putin is determined to fully invade uh, Ukraine, no matter what the cost. Uh, but we, what we have to do is, together with our allies, raise the costs uh, to the highest levels, and, and President Biden's actions today uh, with very swift and severe sanctions combined, uh, as you reported, uh, with the Nord Stream 2 actions and other actions from our allies was a very important first step as well. It's also important that President Biden indicated that there's a lot more to come uh, in terms of punishing economic uh, sanctions. So again, we don't know what's in Putin's mind. There is time for him to pull back the brink if he wants, but we need to make equally clear that there will be more punishing sanctions to come. President Biden announced that this first wave of sanctions against Russia today, but some Republicans, including the House leader Kevin McCarthy, the former U.N. ambassador Nikki Haley, say this is too little, too late. Do these sanctions, Senator, do they go far enough? Well, these sanctions are appropriate and they are severe sanctions, as you reported uh, early on. You know, it, it makes no sense to essentially fire off all your economic ammo at one time and leave nothing in reserve, because uh, that means that Putin has nothing at all to lose uh, from further advancements, further invasion, deeper into Ukraine. Now, it's very possible uh, that he will do that no matter what. Uh, but Using all your economic sanctions at once is certainly not going to stop him, while letting him know that further action will be met by higher prices and higher costs to him uh, at least has a chance of doing As you know, uh, Senator, the uh, Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, announced that today he'll no longer meet with Russia's foreign minister later this week. They were supposed to meet in Geneva on Thursday. That had been planned. Was that the right decision? Do you see any diplomatic path forward at this point? Well, at this point, it's very clear that uh, Putin has rejected uh, the diplomatic path. So what uh, Anthony uh, Blinken, Secretary of State Blinken, made the right uh, decision in not meeting uh, with you know his counterparts uh, and not going forward with that meeting right after Putin had taken the action he did uh, today, uh, including you know sending forces into these newly recognized uh, territories, recognized by Putin and nobody else. Did you ever think uh, you'd see a threat like this with Putin attempting to redraw the map of Europe by force? Uh, what do you think he could be doing next? Well, it's our job to make sure that this is seen um, by history as an epic miscalculation. Uh, and that means raising the price uh, to Putin. We don't know what he'll do next. Um, what we can control is what we do next. And that is why it was really important to work with our NATO allies and other partners around the world 
to act in unison. Uh, that's what we discussed uh, over this weekend at the Munich conference. And I should say, Wolf, in addition to these sanctions on Russian banks, and there can be a lot more to come, we can also help cut off Russia's supply of some critical technologies like semiconductors. And the president is reaching out not just to our European allies, uh, but to Japan and Taiwan and Singapore, which are big suppliers of those high-tech components, to bring them in as well. Uh, so this has got to be a concerted action uh, by the world's democracies against a thug, an authoritarian thug, who is now uh, bullying and launching, launching an invasion against a democratically elected government. And all those sanctions could be very, very painful to Putin and the Russians, including the sanctions against his pals, the oligarchs and their families. That will be very, uh, very, very strong as well. Senator Chris Van Allen, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back from Europe. So, so what is Vladimir Putin's next move and how far could he actually go in trying to redraw Ukraine's borders? And how far might NATO go to try to stop him? We're going to get special insight from the former U.S. Director of National Intelligence, retired General James Clapper. There you see him. We will discuss when we come back. So how will Vladimir Putin react now? That's the big question tonight in the wake of the retaliatory actions taken by the U.S. and Western European nations. Remember, when the Obama administration imposed sanctions on Russia for invading Ukraine back in 2014, it created just a, a modest drag on Russia's economy. Putin was able to hold on to Crimea and learned how to further insulate Russia from financial penalties. So what will these new sanctions mean this time around? I want to bring in uh, the former U.S. Director of National Intelligence under then-President Obama, James Clapper. Uh, General Clapper, thanks so much for joining us. I know there's a lot of uncertainty over how this moment will unfold, but do you believe the sanctions imposed today by the U.S. and Western Europe will impact Putin's calculations? Well, not right away, Wolf. One of the frustrations that people have with uh, the imposition of sanctions is it doesn't result in instant gratification. What you're looking for when you impose sanctions is a change in behavior. And we're not going to see that at least right away. The other thing is, of course, the administration is trying to parse out sanctions in anticipation of further action by Putin. So the sanctions won't I don't think directly affect anything right away, but uh, their impact is uh, will be felt over time, and and then they could have the effect of, of of changing behavior. But initially, no. The U.S., as you know, uh, Director Clapper, didn't initially initially yesterday call this an invasion. They still haven't necessarily even confirmed if Russian troops. Formal military troops have crossed into eastern Ukraine. Now, you've studied Putin over a long career in intelligence. Is this so-called ambiguity all part of Putin's playbook? Oh, sure. This, this is, uh, you know, the, the political act of essentially uh, uh, annexing two people's, phony people's republics in the eastern Ukraine uh, the actual area that the oppositions control, is, as you've noted, is, is, is only part of the area of Donbass and the two states there. So this, this is his way of, of inching in. But he's not, uh, I don't believe, going to allow those 190,000 troops or whatever it is on three sides of Ukraine to just uh, sit idle or not use them. 
So he's going to do more. And uh, that's when he gets into what I would call the, the zone of unintended consequences. Right now, he can, he's controlling this script. But when you start pulling triggers and dropping bombs, things can go bad. And he won't be in, in, in such control. So that's and I think we need to anticipate that. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, as you know, the Biden administration or other Western allies, they've revealed intelligence about Putin's plans every step of the way. Pretty remarkable. Uh, highly classified information publicly revealed. Uh, what do you think of that strategy? I'm all for it, uh, Wolf. Now, there's a downside, uh, of course, uh, when you reveal, particularly on such a timely basis, uh, intelligence you can bet that the Russians are going to back engineer and try to figure out where, where we got it. But it's the right thing to do in an information warfare context, and, and we're clearly uh, in, in such, a, such a mode. So I think this has been disruptive and distracting to Putin, and I hope it continues. Uh, President Biden says, and I'm quoting him now, further Russian assault in Ukraine remains a severe threat in the days ahead. What will you be watching for specifically, uh, Director Clapper, as this unfolds? Well, what I would look for, of course, is uh, moving out in in uh, eastern Ukraine, where right now, in the extreme eastern part, the, the part that's controlled by the oppositionists, the R Russian troops will be welcome. So they establish their foothold, their beachhead, if you will, but I also look for a move from uh, Belarus uh, towards uh, Kiev uh, and the, the attempt by the Russians to neutralize uh, other militarily significant uh, targets. So I, I think Putin overall is interested in rolling back the calendar, the history, by about 30 years. And, and this, this injustice, as, uh, this grievance of his has been eating at him for that long. And for whatever reason, he's decided to do what he can to right this tremendous wrong to Russia. And so I don't think and I don't think Ukraine is going to be the last of it. Well, but I want to get to that uh, because uh, that is really worrisome. First of all, is his goal to get rid of uh, the, the current Ukrainian government of President Zelensky, get rid of them, take over uh, in Kiev, the capital, but then move on to Poland and other NATO allies because an attack on those countries, including cyber warfare, is an attack on the U.S. Well, that's true. And, and, uh, but I think he's talked himself into believing he can get away with this. And uh, he thinks we won't react. We, the West, uh, won't, won't react. Now, Putin is not getting much uh, pushback, as we've seen for these uh, Potemkin Village meetings he's been conducting. So he, he doesn't have anybody telling him what, what he's doing is, is, is dumb uh, or, 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 not, or not the smart thing to do. And he, so he's basically surrounded, as we've seen, by uh, sycophants that are yes men and are not going to push back. So he's not getting any bad news, particularly from his intelligence services. Uh, and that doesn't bode well for him or, or for the West. We're out of time, Director Clapper, but very quickly, how worried should the U.S. be that Russia will retaliate against the United States directly by launching cyber attacks, cyber warfare against the highly vulnerable U.S. industries and others? Well, we should be very concerned about it, Wolf. It's a great question. And we need to, we need to be doing all we can to shore up the, the, our defenses, because I, I expect if there is pain caused by the, the sanctions, 
Putin will not sit uh, idly by and, and let it go. He'll retaliate. And cyber is an easy mode to do it for them. Yes, and they're, and they're good at that, too. And I keep hearing from U.S. officials. That's one of their gravest concerns right now. Director Clapper, thanks so much, uh, as usual, for joining us. Appreciate it very, very much. Uh, remarkable reaction Principal. to Russia's moves from the former, the former president of the United States. Why Donald Trump is using the word genius to describe Putin's aggression. We'll have that and more when we come back. Republicans are blasting President Biden for being too weak on Russia, but the de de facto leader of their party, get this, is spending his time praising, praising Vladimir Putin. Former President Trump uh, going so far as to call Putin's moves, and I'm quoting the former president once again, he says uh, Putin's moves genius. Here's more of his complimentary tone. So Putin is now saying it's independent, a large section of Ukraine. I said, how smart is that? And he's going to go in and be a peacekeeper. That's the strongest peace force. We could use that on our southern border. That's the strongest peace force I've ever seen. There were more army tanks than I've ever seen. They're going to keep peace all right. No, but think of it. Here's a guy who's very savvy. I know him very well. Very, very well. The former president's comments come as the House Republican leadership calls Putin's actions irreprehensible while taking a dig at the same time at the current commander-in-chief. Let me quote from the House Republican leadership statement. Quote, sadly, President Biden consistently chose appeasement and his tough talk on Russia was never followed by strong action. Lethal aid was slow walk. Anti-air and anti-ship capabilities were never directly provided. Pre-invasion sanctions uh, proportionate to the aggression Putin had already committed were never imposed, and sanctions on Nord Stream 2 were waived, end quote. Let's discuss this and more, the political ramifications. Joining us, uh, Abby Phillip and John Harwood. John, can Republicans really hit President Biden for being too soft on Putin? When you look at those comments from former President Trump. Well, they can try, but it's not persuasive. Look, uh, Donald Trump is somebody who has always been entirely transactional. He doesn't value abstract concepts like right or wrong, true or false, autocracy versus democracy. He values people who help him. Russia helped his finances. They helped his campaign. He helped Russia as president, did the opposite of all the things that Joe Biden is trying to do now. Uh, Donald Trump weakened NATO. He squeezed Ukraine for personal advantage. That got him impeached the first time. Uh, and he cozied up to Vladimir Putin. Uh, Vladimir Putin is somebody, Wolf, who uh, wants to recreate a modern version of what Ronald Reagan once called the evil empire. Uh, Ronald Reagan would not recognize the party right now, the Republican Party, that has followed Trump increasingly into a, uh, a, a warm relationship with uh, Vladimir Putin so that they're more interested in criticizing Joe Biden than they are in standing up to Vladimir Putin. Yeah, I was at that, uh, that Trump-Putin summit uh, when Trump clearly sided with Putin and, and didn't side with his own U.S. intelligence community, including Dan Coats, who was the head of the intelligence community. It was a very embarrassing moment indeed. Abby, Democrats are now more likely than Republicans to see Russia as America's greatest enemy. Have the two parties actually done a sort of political flip-flop on Russia? 
I think to some extent they have. You know, Democrats are particularly soured on Russia because of Putin's role in the 2016 election. Many Democrats blame Putin for Trump being president, frankly. And uh, and Trump's coziness with Putin is one of the main reasons why some Republicans, though not all, some Republicans are um, are echoing Trump's comments um, and also questioning the U.S.'s stake in this crisis in uh, between Ukraine and Russia. I mean, uh, you mentioned, Wolf, that that summit between uh, Putin and Trump in Helsinki. I was also at the first summit between Putin and, and Trump at the G20 in Germany. And their interactions in that very first meeting were warm. This is a president who has, for a long time, seemingly admired Putin for his ruthlessness. And now you have, um, predictably, a Republican Party that follows Trump in lockstep, just basically following suit. It doesn't really have much to do with policy. It just has to do with, frankly, what Trump wants. You know, uh, John, the uh, White House seemed to struggle initially with how to respond to these very latest moves from Putin. Uh, What do you make of the change in tone uh, with the president now calling this an invasion? Well, I think there are two things going on there, Wolf. One was ascertaining uh, last night what exactly was happening with Russia. You know, they, they uh, put out the uh, initial uh, mild symbolic sanctions last night. They, uh, senior officials described to describe it as an invasion. They needed to suss out exactly what had happened, what they expect to happen. They also needed to suss out how united they could keep the uh, uh, alliance, NATO and uh, European democracies, uh, behind the sanctions they wanted to impose. And so what we saw this morning, once they had figured that out, We woke up this morning to Olaf Scholz, the uh, German chancellor, announcing that the certification of Nord Stream 2 was halted. The uh, U.S. government described what happened as the beginning of an invasion. And then we saw those tougher sanctions from Joe Biden. So it was a case of uh, the administration trying to make sure they had their uh, ducks in a row diplomatically. uh, And so far, at least, they have. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, Abby, uh, President Biden laid out what, what he calls the first tranche of sanctions today while saying he has no intention in fighting in Russia. Uh, You've called this uh, the most significant test facing uh, Biden and his presidency. What's your take so far on how he's handling this extremely dangerous and delicate balance? Yeah, it's a real balancing act for Biden because he knows that the American public really doesn't have any um, appetite for, uh, obviously, for any sort of uh, conflict involving American troops in that part of the world, but also that he has to regain the trust of the American people, uh, that he is competent enough to manage this kind of global crisis. And even while Americans may not care too much about what's going on in Ukraine, this goes far beyond this moment. And I think Biden knows that. He knows that uh, Russia is testing the West and that if he fails to contain Uh, Russia in this moment, the consequences could be severe in the long term for this country. So, you know, Biden is trying to balance an American public that's focused inward, focused on what's going on at home, uh, but but that needs to to see an American president and America on 
the front on the front lines of this crisis leading and not falling behind. I mean, Biden is still coping with the consequences of Afghanistan and the damage that that did to how people felt about him as commander in chief. This is his opportunity now to turn that around. And so that's one one of the main reasons the stakes are so high for him right now. Wolf. Yeah, good point indeed. Uh, Abby Phillip and John Harwood. Guys, thank you very, very much. Uh, we're going to continue to stay on top of this Ukraine story, new developments emerging. But there's another important story we're following tonight as well. The debate over a fourth COVID vaccine shot for many more Americans. In other words, a second booster. Dr. Sanjay Gupta joins me to take a closer look at how likely it is uh, that that moment will come. And if so, when this is information you need to know. And that's next. The FDA is now considering whether Americans will need a second booster shot of the COVID vaccine. Uh, In other words, a fourth dose. Some countries are already rolling them out. The New York Times cites several studies that suggest just one COVID booster does provide lengthy protection from the virus. But how long does it last and how many boosters might we all need? Let's bring in our chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, why would we need a fourth booster considering these studies that show the third shot does provide strong protection? Yeah, uh, well, that, that's a good question, Wolf. And I think, you know, the data is still coming in on this. Uh, we know that people started getting these, these boosters sort of in the fall of last year. And what they found is that with time, the effectiveness of that booster does start to wane. So let, let me show you the numbers here. We can sort of compare what people look like with the, the two shots and then uh, what happens with the third shot specifically. And what you find is that hospitalization protection goes from about 91% to 78% after four months. Uh, so you can see that, that that's really the concern there, that right side of the screen. Also, you know, you, you keep in mind the first people to get boosters will for people who were older, people who were at high risk of developing serious disease, people in nursing homes. So that may be the population of people who may be recommended this fourth shot. We'll see again. Uh, the the data is still sort of in, incoming. But let me show you one more graph sort of comparing what it sort of looks like between people who are getting two shots versus a single booster and possibly another booster. And what you find when you look at these trajectories is that people who get that booster shot are at the lowest risk of, of hospitalization. But at the bottom right of the screen, you start to see some, some uh, disparity there between the people who got uh, the two shots versus the three shots. Clearly, people who are unvaccinated still at the highest risk, but it's that right lower part of the screen that tells the story, Wolf. If that gap start, continues to widen, and it widens in people uh, beyond just people who are elderly or high risk, that might make the recommendation for people to get another shot. Yeah, get vaccinated and and get that booster shot as well. We'll see what happens down the road. How encouraged, Sanjay, are you by the dramatic, pretty dramatic drop in cases and hospitalizations in recent weeks? Uh, Deaths have dropped as well from about 2,500 a day. Now it's about 1,800 a day. Still 1,800 Americans dying every day. There's still a lot of Americans dying from COVID-19, most of them unvaccinated. What's your assessment? Yeah, you know, Wolf, I mean, it, it's, there are the, the good trend lines here, as you were for the first time since December 1st, below 100,000 cases per day. That's a 45% decrease from last week. Debts also going down, as you mentioned, uh, although still uh, really unfathomably high, 19% lower than last week. 
Hospitalizations, well, still pretty high. I mean, you know, it's interesting. I mean, what are we willing to accept almost becomes the question here. Uh, if the patient, uh, you know, had a really high fever before, the patient still has a fever, but the temperature has dropped. So, you know, it, the question now, is it going to continue to go down to a level that is, that is more acceptable? I think it's um, optimistic, but two times last year, Wolf, um, I think we were surprised. Uh, you know, we thought July 4th of last year uh, was basically going to be a signal uh, that maybe we were sort of looking at this in the rearview mirror, and then Delta. And then as we went into, you know, Thanksgiving and, and the holidays, uh, Omicron. I mean, we've got to pay attention to these cautionary tales. I mean, I, I hate to, you know, I'd like to deliver just good news here and say it's time to, to basically start lifting mitigation strategies. But I think we have to learn from lessons that are pretty recent lessons in the middle of this pandemic. So fingers crossed right now looks good. But I think we're, you know, patients still in the hospital and we still got to keep a close eye on the patient. How worried should we be about new variants? Well, you know, there, there is a new variant out there that's circulating. And, uh, you know, as we collect more data on it, um, it does appear that it's more transmissible than, than BA1, than the Omicron that's currently circulating. Uh, but it doesn't seem to cause any more severe disease. And it seems to be similar enough in terms of the viral, the, the, the virus itself, that it should get the same protections that we get uh, with this current Omicron. So if you are vaccinated, if you have protection, if you have immunity, uh, you should feel very comfortable with that. If you don't, I mean, this is even a more transmissible virus that'll be even more forgiving. But, I mean, to your question, could there be something out there lurking? The, the antennas have to stay raised on that. Yeah, that uh, really uh, worries me. Uh, as you know, uh, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, as usual, our viewers are grateful to you. Thanks so much for joining us. Meanwhile, another yeah, potential well, health threat uh, may be closer than already, than, uh, already feared. The so-called Havana syndrome, after years of worries that it may be the result of a deliberate attack on diplomats and service members, there are now some newly revealed claims it even reached the White House grounds. A former Trump administration official is joining us, getting ready to tell us uh, what happened to her. Very, very worrisome developments. She was just steps from the Oval Office. We'll discuss when we come back. One minute, everything is fine. The next, debilitating symptoms, vertigo, nausea, memory loss, brain trauma, and there's no good explanation. It's been happening over and over again over the past five years to dozens of American government officials. It's called Havana Syndrome, but no one knows who or what is behind it. The CIA, the FBI, the State Department, they are all investigating, but so far, they don't think most reported cases were caused by a foreign adversary, yet those who have experienced it fear the worst. And this may not necessarily just be happening in foreign countries. There are now firsthand reports, very disturbing, firsthand reports of the syndrome happening right here at home, as one former official shared with 60 Minutes. Listen. Someone is trying to send us a message that they can strike blows against us and we can't strike back. That line being crossed into the United States takes this, in some ways, uh, just shy of the realm of warfare. 
Joining us now to discuss her personal story of what happened to her, Olivia Troy. She served as Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor to then Vice President Mike Pence. Olivia, thanks for joining us. I know you experienced Havana syndrome both in the summer of 2019, again in 2020. Tell us what happened to you. How did it feel? Well, hi, Wolf. Thanks for having me on. Uh, look, this is something that's obviously very personal to me. It's It's been hard for me to make the decision to talk about this publicly, but I think it's really important because it's impacting a number of intelligence officers who serve you know, their country and national security and diplomats and military officers. And so for me, um, it was something that happened completely, struck me just completely out of the blue. I happened to be walking out of the Eisenhower Executive Office building on the West Exesters, uh, which faced the West Wing of the White House. It was uh, late in the day after work. I remember vividly the feeling of when it happened. I remember the striking pain on the right side of my head, the feeling uh, that I was going to fall down the stairs if I didn't catch my balance. I felt nausea. I felt somewhat vertigo symptoms. Um, I felt dizziness. I was very unsteady, and I just tried to make my way down the stairs and try to deep, take deep breaths and breathe through it. I remember sort of the fear of thinking, what is happening to me right now? I I, I didn't understand. I, I thought maybe I'm having a stroke. I don't know what it is that's happening to me. I kept walking um, towards my car, and I remember vividly in 2020, like I've never had any symptoms like this ever. I've never experienced vertigo. I I don't have any previous pre-existing conditions. Um, and in 2020, I was walking on the ellipse after work again to my car and this happened again. And it was exactly the same type of sensation of overwhelming something pounding on uh, the side of my head, a piercing pain in my ear. Uh, it was, I remember thinking when it happened again, I thought, whatever this is, it, it's back again, it's happening to me again. Yeah, these are exactly the symptoms I keep hearing uh, over these past several years from U.S. government officials, most of whom were working overseas, uh, but you were right here in Washington, D.C. As you know, uh, uh, the CIA just released a, what they're calling an interim security report. They released it last month that says, and I'm quoting now, we assess it is unlikely that a foreign actor, including Russia, is conducting a sustained worldwide campaign harming U.S. personnel with a weapon or a mechanism. Uh, this report, as you know, was met with a lot of frustration from people who say they experienced Havana syndrome. What, what was your reaction? Yeah, look, I think, you know, it's one thing to say that it's inconclusive because they are still doing the ongoing investigation, which is my understanding. And when you listen to Director Burns, I was grateful that he came forward and said that they're taking this very seriously because this is a significant national security concern. And whoever it is, we've got to get to the bottom of it because there are numerous victims now. And I can tell you, um, you know, there are guesses on foreign adversaries on what this is. Uh, I think they're still looking into that. But I can tell you that just in the time that I've come forward, I've had other officers reach out to me that I have worked with in the past in my career who have come forward and said to me, you know, I, I am in the cohort, cohort. I have these symptoms and it happened to me here domestically. So this is not something that's just happening overseas. I think this is happening on American soil. And I think that it's important uh, for our national security community uh, to really 
kind of take a look at this very seriously and also get these officers who are experiencing this treated medically and examined and followed up on for this for this exact thing. You're absolutely right. You say, uh, Livia, you did not report these episodes initially because you were worried how it could affect your security clearance, uh, how it could affect your career. Do you think others feel similarly? Is there a culture, in other words, of not reporting? I certainly think that there is, you know, there's some some element of shame um, and also just you're, you second guess yourself when it happens uh, and you wonder, well, is this really what it is? I certainly think that there are a number of people who have experienced that. Certainly myself, I, you know, I, I had to come to terms with it. And after sort of piecing it together that others have experienced similar symptoms and similar locations and it's a very similar event and pattern. That is what makes this so distinct. And so I think, you know, for me, it was, yeah, you worry about that. You worry about the implications for your future, your career, your health. And you also, I mean, it's a hard thing, you know, when there's so many people out there who are either uninformed or, or doubt what this is or there's non-believers. And you've spent your entire career in national security serving your country and whether they're going to doubt you. And for me, I'll tell you, when I read the articles and I connected with others, yeah. you just, you know, you know that this is different. Yeah, I've heard the story uh, from many of your colleagues. Uh, Olivia Troy, thank you so much for sharing your story with us, uh, with our viewers. Appreciate it very much. We'll be right back. I'm Wolf Blitzer. Thanks very much for joining us. I'll be back tomorrow night at 6 p.m. Eastern in the Situation Room. And once again here on CNN tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern. And now, here's Don Lemon tonight. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.